I'm Jessica Harris, and this is From Scratch. My guest is Azim Premji, the chairman of Wipro, one of India's leading technology companies. Wipro provides software solutions and research and development and information technology outsourcing to multinational corporations. Wipro's sales are over $3 billion, and the company was founded by Azim's father in 1946. Welcome. Thank you. Wipro is one of the leading technology companies, but the company today looks a lot different from the vegetable oil company that your dad started. And I'm wondering if you could please describe Wipro in the early days. You know, we started in 1946 in a very small town in India, primarily crushing oil seeds. And then, you know, we set up manufacturing facilities to make shortening. Uh, My father died in 1966 at a very young age of 51. And I was a student at Stanford University at that time doing electrical engineering. So I had to come back in a rush and take over the family business. Very small business at that time. It was about $3 million a year. Did you know growing up that you were eventually going to take over the business when he died? Not necessarily, no. It was a surprise. You went to college at Stanford. How did that happen? Well, I did two years of college in India. And, you know, a group of us friends... Uh, thought it would be make a lot of sense if we could apply to American universities, and if we got into a good university, it would be worthwhile to do undergraduate studies there. I got to Stanford, and my parents were willing to finance me, so we just took off. And in those days, they only gave permission to go for engineering. You know, you were not permitted to go for anything outside of engineering, because India needed good engineers. So I specialized in engineering. It was a wonderful three years which I spent there. Where did you grow up in, in India? In Mumbai which is the erstwhile Bombay, the same, the same city. You find yourself in India, 21 mm-hmm. years old approximately. How did the employees take your coming on board? The people who were in the company in terms of leadership were extremely loyal to the family. And it was just natural that in a small company with high loyalty to the family, they would have expected somebody of the family to take over. So I was really not a threat. And, uh, you know, I I think a lot of my early success was because I got an enormous amount of very supportive coaching from them. Though my father didn't leave a very successful commercial company, he left a company with an enormous amount of reputation, Mm. very, very high reputation, which is a major asset to build the future on. And especially in a country like India, which has a reputation of being abundant in corruption to some degree, having a good ethical reputation perhaps set him apart. You know, in the early days, there were some handicaps through it. There were some longer lead times involved. But uh, our experience very soon was that high ethics was more of an asset. It got us more business than we lost. It got us better employees than we'd have got otherwise. It built employees with more muscle tone, more pride, mm-hmm. more self-respect. And it built a certain backbone and a character in the company, which has, I think, been our strongest assets going forward. Now, you mentioned the company was started in 1946, mm-hmm. and India became independent in 47, and Pakistan was formed in 47. And you are Muslim, and a lot of Muslims left India and migrated to Pakistan, and a lot of Hindus left Pakistan, went to India. Did your family think about doing that at all? No. And uh, you know, the leadership of Jinnah, who was the, became the president or prime minister of Pakistan, knew my father well. So he was really uh, trying to persuade him to come there as, as in a very senior ministerial position. But, you know, we had our roots in India, and uh, we are very secular as a family. 
so we saw no reason why we should move from one country to another country just because it happened to be divided on uh, religious lines. In fact, that was a lack of an asset to move to a country which was divided on religious lines because India was a very secular country. Why do you think being in a secular country helps business? I think there's more diversity. Uh, you know, I don't think you base, build a country on religion. You know, in terms of uh, track record, I've been no way handicapped uh, not being a Hindu in India. Mm. Uh, so it has proved to be right that we are truly a secular country. You know, which other country in the world today has a leader of the coalition who's a Catholic, Sonia Gandhi, as a president of India who's a Muslim, as a prime minister who's a minority community of a Sikh, and has a leader of the opposition who's a Hindu. Mm. I mean, which other country can boast of that diversity in leadership and that diversity in a democracy? So it is not something which is superficial and we just thump our chest about. It's very fundamental to the economics of the country and the society of the country. I'm Jessica Harris, and you're listening to From Scratch. My guest is the billionaire and chairman of Wipro, Azim Premji. Wipro started off as a hydrogenated cooking fat company in the 1940s and has become one of India's largest technology firms. With over $3 billion in sales and 70,000 employees, Wipro was ranked among the top 100 global technology companies by Business Week magazine. Time magazine has listed Azim as one of the world's 100 most influential people. The company moves from a vegetable oil company to one that offers call center services many years later, and a lot happens in between. When did you first decide to start diversifying Wipro? We first diversified Wipro in the end 70s. One reason was diversification was the style in those days. Mm. Uh, but more important, you know, we were looking for a high technology business a business and services area because we believed that profitability and growth would be better in the services area. And a business where we could build a strong annuity revenue, you know, repeat revenue, recurring revenue. And we zeroed in on information technology. And one of the leading players in India, international, uh, multinational computer company, had exited India in about 77 because of uh, some revisions in the policy of the government of India. And they had very dominant market share in information technology. So it created a huge opportunity in terms of uh, an entry point. And we started off addressing the domestic IT market. Now, you mentioned in the 1970s when you started uh, focusing on technology that Indian government policy changed and mm -hmm. they kicked out IBM. And I don't know if that's the company you were referring to, but it essentially closed the economy and did not allow foreign investment. When I think of that academically, it has a stigma attached to it mm -hmm. when a government does that. Did you think uh, at the time that it was unequivocally positive what the government did? I don't think the government kicked out IBM. IBM kicked itself out. How come? Well, IBM, uh, the government had a policy that they wanted IBM to bring current technology instead of selling computers in India, which they had junked in the rest of the world 10 and 15 years back. They were selling unit record machines in India in 1980. And I remember we started junking unit record machines at Stanford in the end 60s, just scrapping them. I mean, they were based on cards, computer cards. You had to punch them in. They were semi-obsolete machines very early in the game. And two, the government said that you must dilute your stake in this particular area, which is of national importance. You cannot have a 100% company. And the government was still willing to give them majority control. And IBM in those days believed that the world could not exist without IBM. So they self-removed themselves from the country. And you know, uh, they tried to call the bluff of the government. The government was not bluffing. 
it, it proved an enormously wise decision for the government of India because it built up a whole local industry of information technology, which is today competing with the rest of the world. So and IBM is back in the country with viciousness. They have today 48,000 people in India. IBM is back in the country today because in 1991, the finance minister opened the country because there had been a uh, balance of payment crisis mm -hmm. where the reserves were almost zero and it was sort of a wake-up call to India. But between 1977 and 91, Wipro was able to really develop its expertise. In and a Wipro way. and many other companies. People call you the father of Indian outsourcing. How did you come up with the idea to outsource your services? What was the catalyst for it? You know, I think the catalyst was that uh, we had built a very, very strong R&D team because in the, uh, in the late 80s and the early 80s, uh, India was in a major foreign exchange crisis, you know, which, which necessitated the liberalization process which started in 90 and 91. And one had to really invent everything from scratch. One had to write the compilers. One had to write the operating systems. Uh, one could not import the software, uh, you know, because the duties were either very, very high or the imports were not permitted. So you really had to build from a white sheet of paper a computer and solutions. And as the economy started to liberalize uh, and imports became freer, we found that we could redeploy a lot of these people outside of pure R&D. Uh, so, you know, we used the expertise which we had built in the domestic market to be offered the same services in R&D services to global customers. And one of our earliest customers were companies like Nortel, companies like Motorola, companies like Intel. This was in the late 1980s when fiber optic lines were not even put down between India and the United States. Yes. So how did you communicate with these American companies, for example? Well, you communicated on telephone lines. Uh, you know, they were not the high-speed lines and not as reliable as they were today. You communicated by making more frequent visits overseas. And it was not so easy. I would love for you to define what Wipro is. You know, we are a... Uh, company which renders, we believe, world-class solutions for building productivity and results in companies, but which are embedded deeply into giving those solutions to the use of information technology. So what does that mean? Uh, so, you know, if, 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 you, if you want a sense of familiarity, we compete head-to-head -head with the IBM Global Services. We compete head-to-head -head with the Accentures. We compete head-to-head -head with the EDS. So we have specialization in finance, we have specialization in retail, we have specialization in manufacturing. So uh, for example, uh, my cell phone here sitting on the table, what, what role have you played in this handset? We are one of the largest partners of Nokia globally. We design cell phones for Nokia. Uh, we design the telematics of cars. So if you see a General Motors car, or if you see a car of Nissan or BMW, part of the telematics of the car has been designed by us. And when you say telematics, you mean, for instance, roadside assistance communications? Absolutely. Wipro still has the consumer business, and it accounts for 10% of sales, ultimately? Uh, totally about 7-8% of sales, yes. Some people have advised you to spin off that part of the business because it would unleash some value. What is the reason why you're holding on to that? Is it at all sentimental because that's how your parents started it? You know, that business has funded all our growth in terms of cash flows. Uh, so, of course, it is sentimental. Uh, and we're very successful. You know, it's a decent-sized business. We compete with all the multinationals successfully. 
we're not globalized in that business. Our focus is really the domestic India market. And uh, it's growing at 30% a year. It's gaining market share, and it's fun. What are some of the products you sell? Uh, we sell toilet soap. We sell toiletries. Uh, we sell light sources, light bulbs. So when I'm in India next week and I'm using toilet paper, it's most likely Wipro? Toilet soap. Ah, toilet soap. make toilet paper. <laughs> toilet soap. Yes. What does Wipro stand for? Uh, you know, our original name was Western India Vegetable Products Limited, which became a bit, bit of a joke when we went into IT. So we do, took the first letters of the name and dropped the V. Ah. And that's Wipro. Now, there are obviously skeptics in the United States towards outsourcing, saying that you are giving American jobs away. What is your reaction to, to them? What is your response to them? The, the fundamental issue is that the United States is not producing enough engineers and not producing enough scientists. Uh, the United States will graduate this year probably about 70,000 engineers, when its requirement of engineers is probably at least 100,000, 120,000. And it's not a career of choice for young boys and young girls. And I think that's a fundamental problem that the country is facing. We find our attrition levels of our people here because of demand from multinational IT companies is so high that we have a higher attrition rate in the United States than we have in India. This imbalance between supply and demand, we are giving solutions to American companies to be able to build technology so we really work as co-partners. We do not see ourselves as outsourcers. You talk about a scarcity of engineers in this country, but how about, for instance, the call centers in India? They're not engineers answering the phones. What is your answer to people skeptical of, of them uh, who say we should have call centers here in the United States? But do you have call centers in New York City? We do no. not, because labor not is so because high. Because labor is so high. So your call centers are also migrating to your smaller towns because you're getting a cost arbitrage. So, you know, these are, this is the dynamics of world competition. You know, I'm not saying that there is not going to be community sensitivity. There's probably much less community sensitivity on software engineers because they're not really getting displaced. They're just moving from one kind of job to a different kind of a job. So I think the more sensitive point, as you very rightly pointed out, is to call centers. What is the solution to that? You know, I think you have to appreciate that when co companies and countries globalize, it is a two-way traffic. Sometimes it advantages, sometimes it disadvantages. And if the liberalized part of the Western world wants access to emerging country markets, there has to be some amount of quid pro quo attached to it. I mean, that's fundamental to the whole thing. In fact, Thomas Friedman in his book, The World is Flat, speaks to that. He says that economists often compare China's and India's entry into the global economy to the moment when the railroad lines crossing America finally connected New Mexico to California with its much larger population. When the railroad comes to town, noted Vivek Paul, who was Wipro's president, the first thing you see is extra capacity, and all the people in New Mexico say those people, those Californians, will wipe out all of our factories along the line. That will happen in some areas, and some companies along the line will go out of business. But then capital will get reallocated, and in the end, everyone along the line will benefit. Sure, there's fear, and that fear is good, because that stimulates a willingness to change and explore and find more things to do better. So Very well put. But, you know, you, 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 you look at the IT industry in India and you walk into these large modern centers. What do you see? Carrier air conditioning. Uh, all the kids there are wearing Levi shoes or Adidas shoes. 
they're wearing Levi jeans. Uh, they are wearing uh, all kinds of Western dresses. That's that's a product market for European and American companies. Probably about 60% of the incremental growth is coming from emerging countries. So net-net, uh, there are cycles where you know it hurts. But then the fundamentals of economics creates jobs, including in developed countries. I'm Jessica Harris, and you're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Azim Premji, the chairman of Wipro. Wipro offers research and development, software solutions, and information technology or IT services to major automobile, credit card, media, retail, and mobile telecommunications companies worldwide. Azim has been called the father of outsourcing and India's Bill Gates. I want to talk about some of the cultural issues that Wipro faces, among them angry Americans who will call up and say, I don't want to speak to anybody with an accent. How are you training your Wipro employees to deal with American customers, for example? We do very significant language training. We do very significant accent training. But today, even if you were to pick up a phone in the United States, I mean, there's so much diversity in culture in the United States. Uh, you can get all kinds of accents, uh, including Mexican accents, Spanish accents, New York accents, uh, uh, Midwestern accents. You know, so what is an accent and what is not an accent anymore? I think at the end of the day, does the customer get a service he or she wants in terms of you know an end service or an end product? Don't you think it's kind of sad that you offer accent classes? Well, we do because, you know, otherwise there's a question of understanding on the other side, you know, because of accent infamiliarity. And what's wrong with that? There's a little lack of cultural identity, perhaps. But it's going to happen anyway. I mean, the influence of the West is getting so predominant in emerging countries. We talk about American or Western influence on Indian culture. What can Americans learn from Indian culture? You know, I think you're seeing it happening. You're seeing it happening in various parts of society. You're seeing it happening in terms of the importance of meditation, the importance of Indian music, particularly instrumental Indian music. You're seeing it happening in terms of yoga. You're seeing it happening in terms of some degree of family life uh, also. And so we bring certain strengths uh, of, of more humane tolerance. Do you uh, do yoga? Religion. Do you do yoga? No, I don't do yoga. It requires a lot of patience. Do you have that patience? No, I don't, but my wife has it. She ah. does it very regularly for many, many years. Ah. We talk about uh, training employees, and you've mentioned a couple times that you try to train employees to be more self-confident. Mm -hmm. Why is that an issue with Indian employees? Good question. I think one is to do with, uh, they come from various cultures, and you know we also recruit uh, not necessarily only from universities in large cities. We recruit from universities in smaller towns where the exposure to a more globalized environment has been much less with the normal hesitation of uncertainty and, and fear. Uh, we believe that building self-confidence in people is a very strong prerequisite to building a culture of change uh, because if people are self-confident, they're less threatened by change. No doubt it's important, but it seems is there something inherent in, in the Indian culture that uh, necessitates this type of training and self-confidence? I don't think you would have that type of training with a group of American college grads, for example. I think the society is more respectful of adults. The society is more respectful of authority. 
you know, it, we've been a country which was ruled by the British for many, many years. So, you know, it's a it's a country where people are uncertain vis-a-vis how the Western nations are going to react to them on a one-to-one basis. Uh, but it is changing a lot. And now you see the community of Indian origin in the United States. It's probably having the highest per capita education, the highest per capita national income. And they're successful. You know, they're successful in engineering. They're successful in technology. They're su- successful in teaching. And they're successful in medicine. You talk about, we're talking about self-confidence. And I want to go back to when you first took over the company. Did you have any issues with self-confidence taking over your oh, dad's absolutely. company? Without question. I was petrified. I had no experience in business. It was a complex company uh, in a complex market. It was very competitive. Uh, I was not trained for it. So one had to really bootstrap oneself and learn by trial and error in a very short period of time. What's an example of a mistake you might have made early on with the business? Mistakes on judging people and putting the wrong people in the uh, wrong jobs and you know, then facing a huge personal catharsis of changing them, which is not easy in Indian society. Not because it's impossible, but because you know, it, it's just not expected in terms of a higher fire culture. Uh, I would say those were the biggest mistakes one made in terms of not having a maturity of judgment on people. I wonder, does, does anyone ever have a maturity of judgment on people, ultimately? Well, you improve with, with experience and you improve with intuition. We talk about the company in the early days, but I'm wondering what was challenging for Wipro, let's say, even in the 21st century? What has been more challenging for you than you might have expected? Uh, Rapid growth, you know, we employ over 70,000 people. We are growing at uh, above 30% a year in revenue. Ours is a highly people-intensive business. So even if you build more productivity and more automation year on year, you still recruit a very large complement of people to grow at 30% a year. Biggest challenge is how do you maintain that integrity of your culture? Because that's very important for delivering consistent, high-quality service to our customers. The second is how do you globalize? Because uh, more than 75% of our revenue comes from global markets. Mm. And uh, we are globalizing. We've done it successfully in Europe. We're trying to do it even more successfully now in the United States. So we are in the process of setting up centers in university towns, in you know the more rural settings of the United States, which are cheaper. And uh, where there's local talent available in the universities, good local science and engineering talent, good ex-military personnel who retire early, but do not get jobs in that center. And they have family roots. You know, their families in farming, their families in trade, and they would like to live in those centers. You know, places like Georgia, places like Virginia, And uh, what we are going to be rolling out shortly is hiring college students in in large quantities. We want to take each center up to 500,000 people. Take them to India for the three to four months induction training, which we do, full-time induction training, with all the engineers and scientists which we recruit from campus. Then keep them in India for another three months to get them familiar with the global, global models of operation and bring them back to the place we hired them from and build a cadre in the United States of young boys and young girls who really represent our future. So it seems that instead of being an Indian company with a global outlook, your global company happened to be based in India. Absolutely. Uh, you know, we have, for instance, 3,500 people, people working in Europe. And out of those, 1,400 are locals. In Sweden, they're Swedish. In uh, Finland, they're Finnish. In Norway, they're Norwegians. In the UK, they're English. And we've been able to do it very successfully there. 
I'm Jessica Harris, and you're listening to From Scratch. My guest is the billionaire and chairman of Wipro, Azim Premji. Wipro started off as a hydrogenated cooking fat company in the 1940s and has become one of India's largest technology firms. With over $3 billion in sales and 70,000 employees, Wipro was ranked among the top 100 global technology companies by Business Week magazine. Time magazine has listed Azim as one of the world's 100 most influential people. In addition to facing challenges in hiring people, especially at such a feverish pace, what about geopolitical challenges? I'm, I'm thinking about, for instance, in 2002 when nuclear war seemed imminent with Pakistan. What impact did that have on your business? Well, it temporarily set it back because India got on travel advisory by American companies. So it became more difficult for people to travel because of security reasons. But, you know, I think the situation vis-a-vis our neighbors has stabilized now. And, you know, I'm on the advisory committee of our prime minister. And one of his key objectives is to build much stronger partnerships with all our neighboring countries, whether it be Pakistan, whether it be China, whether it be Burma, whether it be Nepal. Even our relationship with Pakistan is normalizing now. You now have flights from Pakistan to India. No, but we have issued more visas in the past two months for travel between Pakistan and India than we have issued in the past 20 years. Well, in a way, India and Pakistan, for that matter, has more to lose now because of so much economic growth. Absolutely. So a company like Hewlett-Packard, if they're depending on you for their security and their back office services, if there is any strife, they're going to leave. How are you adjusting to that? Are you creating call centers, for instance, in other countries? or? We have built a base in China now. We are in Shanghai. We are in Beijing. We have a base in Bucharest in Romania. We have a base in Porto in Portugal. We have a base in Brazil, in a smaller town in Brazil. Uh, so we are bl- building also, we have a base in, in Mexico, a small one though. So we are building a, a global base in emerging countries to supplement our offerings from India uh, because we also need to give that geographical risk mitigation to our customers. I want to go back to the corruption question for a moment. There's an anecdote by, again, Vivek Paul, who's the former president of Wipro. When he was working in Bangalore, I believe for GE, he couldn't get a local telephone line from his office to the factory because he would have had to pay a bribe. So he somehow got connected to the fiber optic line and was able to leapfrog the local lines. Uh, But still, he was adamant about not paying that bribe. Well, of course, you know, I mean, but I don't think it's unique to India. It's unique to the United States also. It's unique to Europe also. Yeah, so, you know, but uh, India uh, has more of a reputation for, for that corruption. I think because the needs are higher, because mm-hmm. the bureaucracy is more deep, because the regulations were more frequent. I think what um, doesn't, I don't say eliminates corruption or mitigates corruption is liberalization. And today we find Delhi is increasingly irrelevant to us. I just don't visit Delhi. Because most of the things we have to deal with have been deregulated, with the result that the, the necessity to be corrupt or the, ne- the breaks or the, uh, the, the barriers or the gates which bureaucracy can put on you has significantly reduced. I think our enforcement of laws is weaker. So it's not that we are more corrupt as a country. It's that people can get away with corruption easier, whereas the laws in Western countries on anti-corruption and enforcements are stronger. So people are more afraid to be corrupt. Uh, so, you know, it's it's not something which you should just slap on to 
emerging countries like India and China. I'm not saying we are lily white, but uh, you know, when a train runs on time, nobody worries about it. But when a train has a crash, you know, it's headlines in newspapers. Mm. And we are a democracy, and we have an extremely free press and a very, very uh, speaking out press, which is a good thing in our country. Your focus, your philanthropic focus these days is on primary education. Of all the issues facing India, why this focus of yours? You know, the reason is that uh, we have close to 400 million children below the age of uh, 16 years, below the age of 14 years. We have 25 million of them out of school. Uh, we have huge dropout rates after Standard 5, uh, particularly high, higher among uh, the girls as compared to the boys. Uh, 90% plus, 95% plus of our primary education is with state government, mm. which is of questionable standard. We believe it's a major transformation instrument uh, in terms of intervention to build a cadre of more educated people who are better citizens of the country through primary education in the villages of India. So you know, in, our, in our foundation, we focus only in the villages of India. In our company, we focus on the city towns. So we not only uplift the quality of learning and teaching, but it has a side effect. You know, The correlations between even a girl child who's educated up to standard five and six once she gets married, she has a smaller family. So indirectly, you've attacked the problem of family planning. Second thing which we again find is that a family which is little more educated, and I say little more educated, you know, you don't even have to be high school educated, is much more receptive to primary health care and interventions on primary health care and interventions on inoculations. So we see a tripod on it. Not only are we fundamentally educating people better, but I think we're contributing to, in an indirect way, but in a very significant way, to family planning and smaller families and more affordable families and in some way to better environment for family health care because in education we have to work with communities. We have to work with the father and the mother in a community to explain to him or her why she should keep the child in school, why she should not put the child into domestic labor, why she should not put the child on farm labor to supplement uh, the father's requirements of farm labor in farm time. What are some of your other hobbies or interests? What do you particularly enjoy doing? I like hiking. I do it fairly regularly. And I take about three, four breaks a year. Mm -hmm. Not very long, but at least a week each or five days each. And I go up in the mountains. But I like to do it within you know, a, a circuit of about a six-hour drive from Bangalore. Because I don't like to ruin half my holiday in terms of commute. Mm -hmm. And it works well. Well, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Jessica. My guest has been Azim Premji, the chairman of Wipro. I'm Jessica Harris, and this is From Scratch. <laughs>